Good morning. Welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Summerall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise, and thank you for the privilege of sitting down and being with you every morning. We don't tape this show in advance. This is not even a show. This is sitting down and reading our Bibles together. And that's just about all we do. Read our Bibles, pray, and worship God, because that's what Morning Devotions are all about. I pray that one good thing comes out of all of this silly coronavirus, and that is there gets to be a consistency in morning devotions, and it's something that you understand how to do. You, you're learning how to read your Bible word for word. Father, we come to you today. Incline our hearts to your word in Jesus' name. Give us a heart for prayer. Give us a desire for your presence. Like David of old, Lord, may our, may our hearts cry out for you like a deer panting for the waters. Lord, we want a heart for you. Too often in this life, Lord, it's so easy for the cares of this world and even the distractions of ministry like Mary and Martha to distract us from your presence. Father, in Jesus' name, give us a heart for you today. Give us a love for your presence. Give us a desire for you. In Jesus' name. Psalms 91, we begin every morning devotions and every evening service with Psalms 91. This is the psalm of the hour, so to speak. It's a tremendous set of promises for times just like these. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, not to everybody else, to the Lord. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. Uh, Gian, put out this new little um, cover that you're using for your FaceTime right now. And it's really cute to see all of the families under the wings of God. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the most high who is my refuge. No evil shall befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels, not he might, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I love that. It's one of my favorite things about God is everything is about relationship. It's not about knowledge. A baby Christian gets the same promises as someone who has studied their Bible for a lifetime because it's about love. It's about relationship. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What a wonderful God we have. Oh, beloved, mornings are my time to open my heart to God. What a wonderful God we have. 
What a gracious and wonderful God we have. I do pray that in our evening services you're learning that God is not what you thought he was like. There are so many Christians, consciously or unconsciously, on some level, they're not sure they like God. <laughs> they're not sure they're not just a little afraid of him in the bad sense. It's because they've never really gotten to know him. He's not like anybody you've ever met. He's a wonderful God. He's a wonderful Heavenly Father. I remember back in the 1990s in the four and a half years of nightly services and revival, people often ask me, Pastor Summer, why did it last that long? Maybe it took that long for the pastor. Maybe it took that long for me. Because one of the greatest things I learned is God's not a boss. He's my father. He's not interested in what I produce. He's interested in me. My friends, especially some of you guys and some of you ladies too, you define your whole life by what you produce. And yes, we should be fruitful for God and we should bear much fruit. Yes, please, I don't distract from that at all. But what you need to understand is that God just loves you. Now, why don't you open your heart, and lift your heart upon your hands and stand before him and love the one who loves you. Just stand up right now and begin to tell him how much you love him. Bring your words right now, right there in your own home, out loud, bring your own words. That's it. And just begin to tell him how much you love him. Go ahead. Just tell him how much you love him. Now let's worship him together.
My friends, we're focused so much on the coronavirus right now. But you know, there's a lot of people that aren't really worried about the coronavirus. They've got kidney issues, lupus, cancer, strokes. And sometimes these people are being forgotten right now because everybody's praying so much about protection from the coronavirus. Let's pray right now for healing for all of our people. Father, in Jesus name, I lift to you every one of our members. I pray for those right now that are struggling with cancer. Lord, in Jesus name, just like with that fig tree, 
Let that cancer die at its root in the name of Jesus. Lord, I can't lay my hands on them, but there is no distance in prayer. Lord, reach into their rooms right now. Reach into their solos right now. Lay your hand upon them and let that cancer die at its root. Let that thyroid cancer die at its root. Let that lung cancer die at its root in the name of Jesus. And let your life flow into their bodies. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now with lupus and kidney disease and lung problems. Father, let, let the just healing flow. Let a river of healing flow from the throne of God. Let every lung be clear of asthma and emphysema. Let every lung be clear from pneumonia and bronchitis in the name of Jesus. Lord, right now you've given us such fresh air in Manila. There's no pollution. We can see farther than we've ever seen in 40 years. But Father, the air is fresh. Let the lungs of your people be healed. Breathe in deeply the fresh air and enjoy it. Let healing flow into their bodies. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every stroke victim that's listening this morning. Father, let healing flow into their bodies. Let those nerves reconnect in Jesus' name. Let them begin to walk when they haven't walked in so long. Let those arms begin to move stronger than they've ever moved. Father, let your life flow into the bodies of your people. Father, I pray for eyes this morning for cataracts to just disappear in Jesus' name. Oh, let those cataracts just dissolve. Let that film just go away and those eyes be clear. And Father, their eyes not grow dim. I pray for the glaucoma problems, Father, in Jesus' name. Let healing flow. Let healing flow. Father, there are so many people with little things like boils and all kinds of stuff, and they, they can't seek treatment right now because the hospitals are full. Lord, they have to look to you, and that's a good thing. Lord, let them see. Just like with Peter's mother-in-law, you rebuked the fever, and she rose and served you. Just, Lord, rebuke that sickness in their body. Let healing and strength flow in them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me begin to read to you today. Now, those of you that have been sick, just begin to do what you couldn't do before, and it's not trying to make things happen, but the woman with the issue of blood, immediately the bleeding stopped. She felt in her body another passage says she felt in her body. Healing is real. It's not, it's not some psychological thing that you put on. Healing is real. Oh, I'm remembering now. Let's go, go back to prayer. Father, we pray for Pastor Paul Chase right now with this prostate cancer. In the name of Jesus. Father, we command that that thing die. That congregation needs their shepherd right now, Lord. They don't need a weak, sickly shepherd. They need their shepherd strong and whole and healthy. Lord, just like you touched Peter's mother-in-law, touch him. Let that cancer die at its root in the name of Jesus, that he can rise and serve you and serve his people. Thank you that you're going to give him a long life and a life worth living. In Jesus' name, amen. And Father, we pray for Brother John's kidneys. Oh, Father, let those kidneys come back to life. They're at stage three now. Bring them back to stage zero. Let him have the kidneys of a young man, Father. That like Moses, he's just getting started in his 80s. Let those kidneys be strong and healthy and whole. In Jesus' name.
And I don't stop. I'll keep on praying for the whole hour. Folks, prayer is a beautiful thing. It's like breathing. Just, just let it flow out. Our New Testament passage today, and we're just following our Bible reading program, is in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And behold, a lawyer. Now, this is not like a lawyer like we call a lawyer today. These were, these were guys who specialized in the law of God. These were religious lawyers. Okay, And a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, notice the motivation and the question. Now, now, my friends, I want you to hear me about something. You always have to be careful, not of people's questions, but of the motives behind their questions. Let me say that again, the motives behind their questions. I love questions. Questions let you know how well you're communicating. Questions help you think of things you've never thought of before. Questions help you clear up things that you didn't make clear. Questions are beautiful. Questions are wonderful. That's how we learn. But always be careful and, and recognize the motive behind the question. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, remember how Jesus defined eternal life in the book of John. He defined eternal life as an experiential knowledge of the Father and an experiential knowledge of the Son. It's not buhai nangwalang hangang. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, there's an interesting thought. How do you read it? You're a lawyer. How do you read it? Now, it's not just important what the Bible says. It's important how you read it. Just like you need to know the motive behind a question, there are people who walk into the Bible with preconceptions and look into proof text, things that they want to do. And this is what the lawyers were often guilty of in Jesus' day. They, they found justifications and rationalizations. They, they found a, a holy way to do sin. So Jesus said, how do you read it? Let, let's see what your, your pre preconceptions are. Let, let's, let's see if you approach this honestly or another way. How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Okay. That's a beautiful concept. Comes directly out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. We read it the other day in Morning Devotions. Now, I want you to notice, we always focus on the Ten Commandments as the big deal. But God said, this is the greatest commandment. And it's, it's tucked away back there in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The greatest commandment deals with your love life with the Father, your relationship with the Father. See, Jews took everything and made it duty-driven. God wanted everything about relationship from the beginning. This, we, we so misunderstand the Old Testament. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now that comes directly out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Again, just a little verse tucked away back there in the Mosaic law, but again, it shows that God was not talking about duty. Everything that God wanted was about men's hearts and relationships, the relationship with God and the relationship with each other. Now, I tie into this passage, uh, the rich young ruler, and Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. And the guy quoted all the commandments that deal with loving your neighbor, all your commandments that deal with a horizontal relationship. 
And then when Jesus started talking to him about money, he touched on the fact that this guy loved money more than God. Now, when he starts touching on the vertical relationship, the guy goes away sad. See, all the Ten Commandments can be broken into these two things. So really, all the commandments of God can be broken into these two things. Your relationship with God, your vertical relationship, and your relationship with man. Now, religion, when you take God out of it, completely focuses on your social relationships. And there are many churches in the world today that rarely ever talk about a relationship with God. It's all about getting along with each other. It's all about your family. It's all about your friends. It's all about your barcada. It's all about your social responsibility. And, you know, it is the truth. But don't leave off the greatest commandment because you're focusing on the things of the second greatest commandment. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Oh. But now he didn't say you were doing it. He said, do this. Now there, there's a truth that you often skip over. It's not that Jesus was saying he was doing it. He was saying, now you know truth, now do it. Now, did you see that? He answered him correctly. You have answered correctly. Do this. In other words, you're not doing this yet. Do this. You, you know the truth. Do this and you will live. Now, the guy's sin is exposed. Okay? I mean, Jesus did not say you're doing it. He said, do this and you will live. His sin is exposed. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. Ah. Jesus put his finger on his sin, and rather than going and sinning no more, the lawyer comes out, the one who seeks to justify and rationalize and find a, a holy way to do the unholy. But desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> now, my friends, I want you to understand the primary role of these lawyers in Jesus' day, and these were religious lawyers, not legal lawyers, like we think of a lawyer today, was basically to sit down and dice the scriptures and try to figure out a holy way to do an unholy thing. Or to put it in modern words, a Christian way to do a sin. And so, for instance, um, they came up with this thing about the, the Sabbath day's walk. You were only allowed a certain amount of walking. So they said, okay, so if you if you can only walk this far on the Sabbath, then what you do is the day ahead, you go and you put some food there, or you put a pillow there, or you put a blanket or a cloak there, and you call that tree home. So you walk up to that tree, and that's home. Now you can walk another Sabbath day's journey past that tree. They were always coming up with little ways to do things. They say, okay, no meat and, and dairy are mixed in a meal, but we can do it after three hours. Okay, I mean, there's all these little rules and regulations. And that's not the way God ever intended it to be. But this is people trying to justify themselves. Rather than just clearly do what the scripture says, they seek for a Christian way to do a sin. But seeking to desire himself, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, those of you who have been with us to Israel, that is that long trip down the mountain. And it is a long, hard trip through a wilderness and a desert, and it's hot. And the lower you get, the hotter it gets. It's right down there by the Dead Sea. Jericho is right where we begin to go up the mountain. 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the, that road. Now, notice, now we have a spiritual leader. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so that's a Samaritan. I'm a holy man. I won't get near this man. Even though he has a need, I'm not going to get near this man. So likewise, a Levite. Now, here's another spiritual leader. When he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. So they saw a man in need, but because they thought he might contaminate them, they weren't going to help him. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now notice, there's seeing people and closing your heart. And then there's seeing need and having compassion like God does. When God sees need, God has compassion. I taught you the other night, he has compassion on all he has made. He saw him and had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to take care of him. Now notice, first he takes of his own assets, his own oil, his own wine, cleans the wound, sanitizes the wound, and then he inconveniences himself, puts him on his donkey, and he walks and lets this man ride on his donkey. So he, he not only gave to the man, he sacrificed for the man and took care of him. Again, he's sacrificing. He's giving of his own time, not just his own resources, his own time. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. All right, so he sacrifices for him, he gives of his own assets for him, he gives of his own time for him, and then he says, I want to make sure this is finished. He doesn't take care of him as a halfway job. He says, I want to make sure this is finished. Here, here's some extra money. If you spend more than that taking care of him, I'll pay you on my way back through. And obviously he was known as an honest man because the innkeeper agreed to this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Wow. So in other words, being a neighbor has nothing to do with what they can do for you. Being a neighbor has to do with what you can do for them. <laughs> you see, well, that wasn't very neighborly when somebody mistreats us. Well, you know, they're not a very good neighbor because they don't give me things. Well, it's not about what people give you. Calling somebody your neighbor means that you're willing to sacrifice and help them. You're willing to show them mercy. Ah. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted by her much serving. Now, the Greek word there for serving is ministry. Now, she had the ministry of hospitality. She was preparing the food and drink and making sure everything was ready. She was distracted with her much ministry. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You can always tell a Christian who... Um, is too duty-driven because they're always upset with other, what others are not doing. 
Let me say that again. You can always tell a Christian who needs more presence and less duty because they're always upset that other people are not working as hard as they are. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to come help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled by many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. Now, there's a few things I want you to notice here. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus never asked her to go do all this work. He came into the house and she just started doing what she wanted to do. Now, sometimes, brothers and sisters, you have to understand that we are taken away from the presence and we are distracted from what is really good, the presence, because nothing that we have been requested to do, nothing that we have been required to do, but something that we have just decided within us or culture has decided for us and we don't want to disappoint, something has told us that we have to do this, but it wasn't Jesus. Maybe it was our own hearts, maybe it was our culture, maybe it was our family upbringing. Something has told us that we needed to be doing something. And really, what we needed to do is do like Mary and choose the good portion, which will not be taken from her. You see, sometimes, brothers and sisters, as Christians, we get so busy serving Jesus that we ignore Jesus. Let me say that one more time. Sometimes as Christians, we get so busy serving Jesus that we ignore Jesus. Now, I really want to challenge you this morning. Look around at some of the things you're doing in your life and go, you know, is this something Jesus asked me to do? Is this something Jesus has required me to do? Or is this just work I've taken on myself that is distracting me, that is distracting me from the good portion that Jesus does not want to take from me. See, there would have been time later for everybody to work together and put the food together. There would have been plenty of time later. But right now, Jesus was teaching. They could have put the food together later when Jesus was just talking to people. But now that Jesus was teaching, ah, see, sometimes people get so distracted in their serving, they don't understand that these things could be done later. Let's always focus on the presence. Let's always focus on Jesus. Not what we can do for him. Him. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Would you come back with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 21? And as you're turning back there, let me just ask a favor of you today. Why don't you sit down with a sheet of paper and ask yourself the question, what am I doing that the Lord never asked me to do? Ah, what am I doing that the Lord never asked me to do? If you're feeling all harassed and you're feeling all critical about other people not helping you do the work of the ministry, then you've got a heart that's a little overloaded. So what are you doing that the Lord never asked you to do? And may I humbly ask that you prioritize again the presence, that you prioritize just sitting at his feet and being with him. I, I looked at my wife one time years ago, and she was getting all busy, and she was cooking this and cooking that. And I said, sweetheart, we've both been working so hard, and we're so busy. I said, sweetheart, would you just come and sit with me? I don't care about all the fancy dinner. Just come sit with me. Let's just sit together. Doesn't matter that we eat some big fancy meal. Just come and sit. Now, every husband understands what I just said. Multiply that by infinity. And that's how Jesus feels toward you. He's not interested in what you produce. Yes, we should bear fruit. But he's interested in you. He loves you. All right. Let's get into Deuteronomy chapter 21. Now, some of these passages in the Old Testament, you say, oh, Pastor Samuel, why do I have to read this? It, it has nothing to do with my life whatsoever. But, you know, in every passage, some of it you look at, you go, okay, that was, eh. But you're going to find little gems, little gems that just jump out at you. And, and this passage today has some stuff that most of us would just blow right through and hardly read it. But if you do that, you're going to miss some gems. So let's pick up with uh, chapter 21, verse 1. If in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in an open country, and it is not known who killed them, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not been pulled in a yoke. And the elders of this city shall bring that heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and he shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to you and to bless you in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. Now, that's a little summary there of the, of the work of the Levites. But I want you to notice something there. God never allowed the people of Israel to think that they had no need for spiritual leadership in their life. He said, these are the people chosen to minister to the Lord and to bless in the name of the Lord and to settle disputes. Now, Brothers and sisters, please forgive me. I remember back in the 1970s, uh, we were very much in the era of um, 
the priesthood of the believers was the big doctrine at that time when I when God first called me to preach. And I can remember people saying, we don't need pastors, we don't need this, we don't need that. And churches blew up and were destroyed in all kinds of weird, chaotic doctrines. Same thing is beginning to happen in the world today. People think, oh, we don't need pastors, we don't need apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. We don't need these gifts that God gave to the church. They're, they're superfluous. All the believers can minister to one another. Well, again, if you go Genesis to Revelation, God has always had spiritual leadership in the lives of the people, and God has always reminded the people that they need that spiritual leadership. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley, and they shall testify. Our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed, except atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. And you shall purge the guilt of the innocent blood from your midst when you, when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Now, you have to put a lot of other verses with this to understand this passage. I want you to remember that when Cain killed Abel, God said, the blood of your brother cries out to me. The blood that you shed of your brother that has gone into the soil cries out to me. And I also want you to remember how in other passages I've showed you from the Old Testament that, that when you murder somebody, it pollutes the land. So now you understand why uh, you were to go into a place where there had been no plowing, where the water ran. It was untouched land. You go into an unpolluted area. There is no murder there. There's, there's, there's no blood crying out from the land there. You go into this unpolluted area, and there you make atonement. So when you begin to put these verses together, and you see that every person who is murdered, if they murdered somebody in the street across from me, and that blood went into the ground, that blood cries out to God. That blood speaks. Now, you and I may not understand that, but that blood speaks to God. There is a pollution that has affected the land, and that pollution of murder is far, far greater than what some company puts in the river, though companies shouldn't put that in the river either, so don't, don't, don't mistake me. Verse 10, when you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails. In other words, you get rid of all the, forgive me, diseases and infections from that other nation. And there's very practical reasons why God says these things. She shall take off her clothes and she shall remain in your house and lament her father and mother for a full month. So, all right, let's get rid of any diseases and things that she's had. Let's quarantine her. Literally, she's literally under house quarantine for one month. And she's allowed to grieve. Hey, you got to understand she's a human. She may be one of your, the, the woman of an enemy, but you know what? She's still a human. Let her grieve the death of her father and her mother. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. He said, now, listen, you, you made a decision to take her. You made a decision to, to remove her virginity. You made a decision to have sex with her. He said, you shall not sell her for money, nor you shall you treat her as a slave since you have humiliated her. He said, now listen, if you're going to take this woman, then you have to understand 
you need to take care of this woman. He was very clear about this. If a man has two wives, the one he loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns the possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference over the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the firstfruits of his strength, and the right of the firstborn is his. Now, God is not advocating multiple marriages, but he said, listen, if you go and do this, this is not the way I set it up. I didn't give Adam two wives. I gave Adam one wife. This is not the way it was at the beginning. But he said, now, if you guys go out and you do these things, you're not allowed to mistreat the children. Now, this, see, there are things that the Bible teaches us that it's not that God is saying this is okay. He said, if you've done this, if you've made scrambled eggs of your life, let's make sure that the children are not penalized for it. If a son has a stubborn, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and shall bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, and he will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Now, stop there. What did they accuse Jesus of? He's a glutton and a drunkard. Okay? They're using scriptures like this to show that Jesus did not have a right to live. They're saying that Jesus was a stubborn, rebellious man. Mm. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. <laughs> now, I had to be very honest with you. I'm glad I wasn't born in a Jewish family back in that time, because until I was 14, and probably even until 15 or 16, uh, I would have been stoned to death. Thank God for his mercy upon our lives. Young people, yes, you can say a lot of things about this passage, but young people, understand how destructive rebellion in a family is and how destructive it is to an entire nation to have rebellious sons now notice it doesn't talk about a girl it's just the boy hmm. i'll leave that one alone verse 22 and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you should hang him on a tree that body shall not remain there all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Okay? Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus was cursed. He bore the curse for us. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Chapter 22, verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep go astray and ignore them. Now notice, when somebody has a problem and they don't see it, but you see it, you are told not to ignore it. Now, there's a great truth there. You shall take them back to your brother, and if he does not live near you, and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. So, in other words, 
if you find something that somebody lost, you pick it up and you take care of it. It's not finders, keepers, losers, weepers. It's not that. You take care of it until you find out who it belongs to. I was reading a story the other day about a taxi driver and somebody had left 10,000 pesos in the taxi and the taxi driver didn't just disappear. The taxi driver went back and found the person that it belonged to and gave them the money. Now, that is a good person. Then you shall restore it. And you shall do the same with this donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. We should never ignore things that belong to other people. We should never ignore that. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Folks, you have to understand, we're supposed to help one another. Now remember, love your neighbor as yourself. Now th this is, these are these love your neighbor as yourself laws. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now this is called cross-dressing. Now, I remember as a, a young baby Christian uh, in the Assemblies of God, girls were not allowed to wear pants. And it was always about the girls doing wrong. But I could never understand that. I thought, well, maybe just because I didn't grow up as a Christian, I don't get all their rules and regulations. But when I came over as your pastor here in Manila, we were doing open-air crusades down in Plaza Miranda. And it was, you know, we didn't have much in those days, just a couple of ugly speakers and a, some uh, scaffolding and some really thin plywood that today, if I stood on it my size, would break. And we would get up there in the middle of Plaza Miranda, and we would sing, and we would preach, and we would pray for the sick, and we'd get people born again. And it was a wonderful time. We were, we were learning evangelism. But we, the girls, you know, we had problems because the drunks would come up to the very edge of the platform and try to look up the girls' dresses. I thought, oh, this is nuts. So I told the girls, wear pants, but wear girl pants. And they said, well, Pastor Summer, we can't wear that which pertains to a man. I said, you're not wearing man's pants, you're wearing girl's pants. Girl's pants are made differently than man's pants, just like a man's shirt is made different than a girl's shirt. So there's girl pants and there's man pants. There's girls' blouses and there's men's shirts. They look different, they're made different, they fit different. And I'll just say that as politely as possible. Now, but what the Bible here is talking about is cross-dressing, where guys try to dress up and look like a girl and girls try to dress up and look like a boy. That is wrong. If you come across a bird's nest in any tree on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother is sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may live long. Now, there's not just spiritual things here, there's practical things here. If you take the mother and the eggs, there's no future. If you take the eggs, great, you got some food to eat. Mama will lay more eggs. Now, I never thought I'd see this. And probably it's only because my dad is in heaven. But my sister raises chickens. Now, she used to always live right next door to us. I cannot imagine living next to my sister right now with roosters and chickens and uh, but it's the barrio. Every morning, my sister goes out and collects eggs and she's got all these chickens. She doesn't kill the chicken and eat the eggs, then there's nothing for the future. She takes the eggs, lets the chickens live, 
they lay more eggs. So you see, there's little pieces of truth in here about the future. Always let in the future be prepared for. Now he talks a little bit more about that in verse 8. When you build a new house, you shall, not make a, you shall make a parpet around your roof, like a little fence around the roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood on your house if anyone should fall from it. He said, in other words, when you do construction, think about safety. Think about silly children that are going to be running and not paying attention. Think about old people that will be a little unsteady and, and you know, tip over and fall off. He said, you gotta, you got to think about this. He said, you got to think about the safety of others when you build your own house. It may be your house, but others are going to be in your house. So if you, you build a roof deck, he said, always build a fence around the edge of it. You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a yoke together, and you shall not wear cloth, cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, he's talking there about mixing things. There are things that don't mix. When you put a donkey and an ox together, one moves faster than the other, one is stronger than the other, one is a different height than the other. He said, listen, you don't mix these things. You're going you're gonna to damage your oxen. He said, and you don't mix the seed in your field because different seed require different things. And you start mixing things and you, you lose everything. And, and you don't mix linen and wool because when you mix those two together and you wash them, they dry differently. They have to be handled differently. So he said, you have to be careful about this mixing of things. Verse 13, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her, and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of her virginity. In other words, her hymen had already been broken, and there was no blood on the first night. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father and the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. Those, hey guys, you can't just treat women any way you want. There's going to be consequences for that. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give him to the father of the young woman, because he brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel. And she shall be his wife, and he may not divorce her all of his days. But I think the thing is true, that the evidence of the virginity was not found, but if the thing is true, the evidence of the virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house, and he shall purge the evil from your midst. In other words, God is teaching no premarital sex. If a man is found lying with a woman of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge this evil from Israel. Now notice, when the uh, leaders brought the woman caught in the very act of adultery and threw her at Jesus' feet, you notice they didn't bring the man? <laughs> that was never the way God intended it. Man and woman are both guilty. It takes two not just one. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, 
Then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city and shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. These are the laws of rape. But if in the open country a man meets a woman who is betrothed, and a man seizes her and lies with her, rapes her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But she shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor, because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed woman cried out for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man shall lay with her, shall give her a father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all of his days. A man shall not take his father's wife, so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Now, again, there's stuff in there you look at and you go, oh, my goodness, oh. But there's some beautiful gems in there also. Now, we're glad that Jesus fulfilled the law. Because if in the Philippines we lived by, you know how the, the, the Islamics are always wanting to live by Sharia law? Well, if the laws of our land were this, that would be like Sharia law for Christianity. Um, Jesus fulfilled the law. Okay, we, we live in an age of mercy and grace. But there are principles here. And those principles, they don't change. And thank God for a God who is holy. You say, Pastor, a holy God, that's a scary thought. No, the holiness of God just means that he doesn't change. The holiness of God just means that he's knowable. Now, raping is still wrong. Murder is still wrong. These things are still wrong. Ah, I'll let you go meditate on that for a while today. Let me pray for you one more time. Father, let sickness and disease be far from our households today. I thank you that the coronavirus shall not come near the homes of our people. I thank you that every one of our first frontliners, Lord, are surrounded by the love of God. Your faithfulness is their shield. Your angels have been given charge concerning them to guard them on their way. Let your hand of compassion, let your gracious hand rest upon your people today. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock for service.